Good evening. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can open them, first of all, to uh, the book of Galatians. We're not going to spend a lot of time there, but um, we'll, be, we'll be jumping around a bit today. But that's sort of our, our starting point. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew rack in front of you there you can use. And a couple of weeks ago, uh, we did an introduction to this study on the fruit of the Spirit to give us uh, some context for Paul's words regarding these virtues that um, are a part of our lives because of the work of the Holy Spirit, because we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. There are nine of them, these fruit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, um, in the passage in Galatians that we'll be looking at. Um, and so a couple weeks ago we did the introduction, and tonight we'll start with the first one of the nine uh, individually, so over the next few weeks, we'll be working our way through those through the fruit of the Spirit. Um, they're found in Galatians chapter 5, if you want to turn there. Galatians chapter 5, specifically in verses 22 and 23. And we'll read that and then pray. It says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, Self-control, against such things there is no law. Okay, this is the word of the Lord. These are the, the fruit of the Spirit. And so let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll get started tonight. Our Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this evening, for the opportunity to come together, to open your word, to read what you have said, Lord, to, we ask that you would help us through your Spirit to give us understanding, Lord, that we may apply what we hear from your word to our lives, Put it into action, Lord, and we thank you for empowering us to do so. Thank you for your grace and your mercy in our lives, for the joy of fellowship together. We give you praise in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, remember that the letter to the Galatians was written to several churches in the region of Galatia, and it's because they were... Um, being infected by the introduction of a false gospel of works, um, also known as works of the flesh. Um, but as Paul made clear, Christians are free from works of the flesh by virtue of being in Christ, having the Spirit of God indwelling each believer. We are free from that because of this um, ongoing struggle that, that we have with sin. There is a battle going on in our lives um, between the desires of our flesh and what the Spirit produces, what the fruit of the Spirit is. Um, and Paul made a clear distinction in Galatians, in chapter 5 there, uh, between what the works of the flesh are and what the fruit of the Spirit is. And we read that when we did our introduction. He's got another list. It's actually a bigger list than the fruit of the Spirit. But there's, if you read through that chapter, you can see that, that distinction that he makes. And before we get into our first fruit of the Spirit, we, I want to ask a question. And remember, um, when we come together on Wednesday nights, and if, if I have a question, it's for the group, so feel free to speak up if you have an answer. Um, so without, without listing one of them, what is a fruit of the Spirit? So listen to the question. Without listing one of them or telling me what it is, what is 
the fruit of the Spirit. Okay? Being a disciple of Christ. Okay? What was that? Okay, evidence of salvation. Okay. Sure. Proof of restoration, we could say that. I think, maybe I didn't ask the question good, but I was thinking of a question that somebody asked on on a documentary I watched where they asked a question and, and said, give me an answer to this question without using the word in your answer, and they could not do it. They wanted them to define something, and they could not define it without using the word. The word itself is not a definition. Anyway, um, but so I was thinking about this in terms of the fact that it's a fruit of the Spirit, a, a godly virtue manifesting in the life of a Christian, flowing from and produced by um, and as a result of the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Right? By definition, this is fruit of the Spirit. Okay, it's his fruit that he produces in believers. The, the flesh produces fruit in and through you in keeping with something else, in keeping with your, your and my sinful desires. That's what the flesh produces. The Spirit of God produces fruit in and through you in keeping with his righteousness. That's where it comes from. It's, it's from his righteous nature. Well, what does that mean? Did, Fruit of the Spirit. Did I, did I figure it out? Did, did I come by it naturally, a fruit of the Spirit in my life? Do I have the ability in and of myself to possess and produce these godly virtues? Kind of a question we have to ask ourselves. The answer is no. It, it must come from some other source, and the reality is it all changed at the moment of salvation. If you are a believer, that's when it all changed. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, what? The new has come. Okay? And the very next verse after that one starts by saying, all this is from God. So we, we had to be made new, and the Bible calls that being born again. And we are a new creation, a new man or a new woman created in Christ Jesus, and the Bible says, for good works. We are now of the Spirit. We still have flesh. We, still, we are still here on earth, living from day to day, uh, waiting for Christ to come back. But we no longer, as Christians, live according to the flesh because we've been born again. Okay? Set free to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? It's, it's Paul's point in Galatians 5, and he makes, he makes a similar point in Romans 8. In verses 5, 9, and 14, I'm going to kind of skip a little bit there, but in verse 5 of Romans 8, it says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Verse 14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So in the Bible, we see these things called the fruit of the Spirit, and we also see things called gifts of the Spirit. Okay, both the fruit and the gifts are from the Spirit. So my next question, again, with, without listing the fruit or the gifts, what's the difference between the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit? 
kind of a hard one. Oh, their purposes are different. Okay, what would you say the purpose of the gifts of the Spirit? Sure. Yeah, you can answer. There you go. Yeah. Not every Christian possesses all the gifts of the Spirit. Okay. First uh, Corinthians twelve four says, "Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit." And verse seven: "To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good." Goes to what you're saying about for the edification of the church, not a, not for individuals. The gifts of the Spirit. And then verse eleven of First Corinthians twelve: "All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as He wills." Okay, this is about the gifts of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit. Notice the the singular. The singular nature of that word, the fruit of the Spirit, it's produced in, and this is produced in every single Christian. Okay? There are, there are no Christians without love being produced in them by the Spirit. It's one of the fruits of the fruit of the Spirit. Okay? Or with joy, or without peace, or patience, etc., being produced in them by the Holy Spirit. It's a fact. If you are a Christian, these things are and will be, in increasing measure, a part of your life. Okay? Because. They're a work of the Spirit. So if I ask the question, what do, you, what do you expect to see growing on an orange tree? Oranges. What do you expect to see growing on an apple tree? Well, what about, what do you expect to see growing on a tomato vine? Tomatoes, right? We all know these things. So in the same way, the fruit that we should expect to see growing in a Christian, on a Christian tree, okay, we'll just say it that way. There are no Christian trees, by the way. It's talking about us, okay, as Christians. That's you and me. The fruit that we expect to see growing on a Christian is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Okay, these, all the things that Paul listed there. There are more in the scriptures, but in Galatians 5, that's what he lists there. Okay, those are the things we would expect to see on a Christian tree. Okay, not something else. Just like we would see oranges on an orange tree, these are the Christian virtues produced by the Holy Spirit in a believer. Okay? So, the first of the fruit of the Spirit is love. That's where we're at tonight. Um, and it's, I don't believe, a mistake that it's in the order that it's in, that love comes first in this. What does the Bible say about God in terms of love? God is love. Okay? He is love. There are, there are other Christian virtues that are empowered by the Holy Spirit as well. The Bible has other lists, or like Paul listed them out there in Galatians. There are other lists, and even in those lists, you'll see some repeats of the things that are in Galatians 5. Um, but love is always there, and it's really given a, a place of prominence. Uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, it says, So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. And we also see other examples. In 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul says to Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And 2 Peter 1.5-7 says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control. 
and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Love is the foundation. It is what was shown to you and me as Christians first in salvation. And, and it is what motivates your application of the fruit, this fruit of the Spirit. First, your love for God, and then your love for others, as he's clearly commanded you to do. John 13, verses 34 and 35, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And we'll come back to those verses a little bit later. So then, we should probably start asking ourselves, what is, what is love? What did Paul mean when he listed it as a fruit of the Spirit? The world has a lot to say about love, what, what they think love is. If you're talking about songs that have been written through, throughout human existence, probably the vast majority of them have something to do with love. Um, or at least what they think is love. I was trying to think of a list of popular love songs that I could think of just off the top of my head. And these are just the ones with the word love in the title. I did have to look a couple of these up. but So, and these are not like hymns or church songs. I'm talking about the secular world. Okay, for a minute, and we'll just think about what they think about love. But So some titles of songs are, what is love? What's love got to do with it? Love bites. Love is on the way. Love will keep us together. Endless love. I think I love you. Love me tender. And that's for all you older people. I, I will always love you. And when a man loves a woman, and I love her, can't buy me love. Nothing's going to change my love for you. Bleeding love, the power of love, and I want to know what love is. And this is just a small fraction People write about, sing about, talk about love all the time in our culture. But what does the world know about love? Where do they get their thoughts on love? So what do you think? What does the world mean then when they write about or sing about love? What, do you, what comes to mind? What do you think the world means? Physical? Okay. What else? Lust, okay. Any others? Emotion, okay, it's an emotion. It's an experience. It's a feeling. Um, probably, in especially these days, in songs, um, probably most often associated with or used kind of interchangeably sometimes with sex. Um, people kind of equate the two as if they're the same. Um, also, most often it is, when the world talks about love, it is a response to something um, pleasing received by another person. Okay? Whether it be a gift received or, or a kindness received from someone else. In other words, it's given or shown um, or it's Love is given or shown based on performance, the performance of another. And that's the only way I'm going to give it to you, if you meet certain criteria. And that's typically how love is seen in our world. 
and I work um, at the local community college, and this is, they sent out an email the other day, and this is what they're offering on college campuses to teach people about love. It's a webinar series called Developing a Critical Theory of Love, a Framework for Educating for Social Justice. And it says this, love within the U.S. context is often defined in overly individualistic, anemic, and depoliticized ways. It is discussed almost exclusively in the context of romance and its familial dimensions. I think that's probably the only true statement they have in here. Why? What of love and its role in social transformation? This session will interrogate the westernized construction of love. It will analyze the ways in which the everyday notion of love operates as a tool of oppression and perpetuates white supremacist ideology to shape our social realities, desirability, and diminishes our possibilities for social transformation. Instead, this session will offer us all an opportunity to interrogate what love is, how we've been socialized by it, and how it shapes our capacity to lead, change, and hold each other with loving accountability within the moment. I have no idea what any of that means. And it'll only cost you $25. If it sounds like a foreign language to you, it's because it is. It's not that there's nothing in there that has some truth. Like I said, that the idea of the romantic and familial sense of love, sure. That, that's, I believe that's true. That's how we most often think of those things. Um, but the webinar itself and teachings like that in our culture, in our time, are not based on the Bible. They're not based on a godly biblical worldview. They are based on godless ideologies. Um, but thank God we're not left to understand love in these ways. He's given us his word. He tells us what it is. Um, so then what we have to do is define what Paul meant by what he said in Galatians 5. It, is he talking about emotion? Is he talking about an impulse? Uh, is he talking about a feeling? Uh, is he talking about a response to being treated well? No. And the word Paul used for love in the terms of the fruit of the Spirit is agape, okay? And, and we've, in other studies here, we've defined this word before. Um, we need to look at it again. This is not a romantic love. It's not a brotherly or familial love. It's not a sexual love. Um, and here's how John used this word and how he defined what it would look like in John 15, 13. That greater love, that word, agape, has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And that's, so he says what he's talking about, love, and, and there's no greater version of that than this, than that someone would lay down his life for his friends. Now, this doesn't just mean that you step in front of a bullet for someone, or in a hostage situation you say, take me instead. Though it could be that, but that's not really what he's talking about. Um, so it could show up that way, but there's, there's so much more to love that Paul is saying is as part of this fruit of the Spirit in every Christian okay, and what he means by this word. And in English, we really have only one word to describe an array of feelings, and you would have to know the context behind every situation to really grasp what someone meant when they said love. They use the word love because we use it for everything. Um, there are other Greek words in the New Testament for love. Um, 
that deal with things like brotherly love and a romantic or an erotic love. But that's not what's being conveyed in Galatians 5 in terms of the fruit of the Spirit. Okay? Agape is. And it's, in essence, it, w- it is goodwill, benevolence, and willful delight in the object of love. And that word willful, I think, is important here because this is the love Paul's talking about is a love of the will. It's a love of choice. It's, it's a choice to love whatever the object of that love is, and it's not based on performance or merit. Okay? It's not, you do something that I like, therefore, I love you. Um, and this is very important to us as Christians. When Paul uses this word, agape, it's, when that word is used, it is describing something, um, and the verse above that we just read makes that point, I think, very strongly. It's, it is a sacrificial love, exemplified in what John said in, in talking about one laying down their life for others. That is sacrifice, right? That's the kind of love that we're talking about here. So there is no greater love, to use the English word, than than the love that Paul is talking about. And is it a sacrificial love of the will um, of the one doing the loving regardless of what is received from the object loved? That's what this is. Okay? It's a sacrificial love from the one doing the loving regardless of what is received from the object loved. So the love Paul writes about as being a fruit of the Spirit produced in the lives of Christians is the greatest kind of love there is. Okay? It is the greatest kind of love there is. What he's saying is a part of your life as a Christian, is in terms of a fruit of the Spirit of love, it's the greatest kind of love there is. That's what the Spirit of God is bringing out in your life. And John gave the general example of one laying down his life uh, for his friends. But what other examples do we see of this in Scripture? And, and then I also have to ask the question, why is... Why is this the kind of love produced by the Spirit of God in Christians? Why is it in particular that this is the kind of love that the Holy Spirit is producing in your life as a Christian? What do you think? Why is it that, in terms of the fruit of the Spirit, that this agape love, that this is the kind of love that the Spirit is producing in us as Christians? Why not one of the other kinds? What? Pure, okay. Okay. Other thoughts? There you go. Right? Because like we said at the beginning, Scripture tells us God is love, and that's the kind of love he is. It is what Christ did. It's the example we have from Christ. He, he, God, being the source, therefore produces not only what he is, but what he does. That's what he's producing in us. Same word describing God in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Same word. Okay. If we try to fit our cultural definitions of love into that verse, it doesn't work. We love because someone has earned it. Would that be true as to why God sent his son? No. No one has earned salvation, nor will they ever. That is not 
God didn't send his son because we deserve it or we earned it. We love because someone makes us happy. Would that fit into that verse? No. Is God happy with people? No. Uh, We're wicked sinners. The Bible tells us that constantly, Old Testament, New Testament. It is a constant drumbeat that we are sinners. Um, The Bible tells us what God thinks about that. Psalm 711 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. And Psalm 11.5 says, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. So the Bible doesn't, and we shouldn't, try to fit our idea, our ideas and thoughts about love, if they match what the culture says, into what Paul is writing about in Galatians 5 in terms of the fruit of the Spirit. Um, we have to know what he means by what he says. I think we have a better idea now. And really is an amazing description of love and God is not asking us to do or be something that he is not and has not already done. Um, like Mary mentioned about Jesus. This is, this is how he came. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love, same word, for us in that while we were still sinners, what? Christ died for us. Was it? Because we merited it, we earned it, no, while we were yet sinners. That's what the Spirit of God is also producing in you as a Christian. That kind of love, that sacrificial love of the will. How would anyone know about or understand this kind of love without God revealing it? Mankind left to their own without the Word of God, as we can see, would come up with all kinds of definitions for what love is and and what it looks like, and what it means, and all that. It is an attribute of God. It is in his character to love this way. And as the Spirit of God works in us, he is producing this kind of love in you and I as Christians. Why is it important that we have this kind of love produced in our lives? Why is it important? We can show it to other people. What else? Absolutely, right? It's it's to point people to Christ. it's another reason why this particular love is what the Holy Spirit produces in us as Christians is that it goes against the very nature of sinful humanity. This kind of love is a total contrast to anything else, to the, what the flesh produces, in total contrast to that. People didn't, people didn't see Christ come in our time. Okay? God says, this is this is true love, and the world of man doesn't believe it. Like, when we see this in the Bible, and we see that this is what God says love is, the world doesn't believe that, because they've come up with their own thing. They don't believe that. They don't believe God. They don't believe God loved this way, let alone that man does or could love in this way. 
Uh, they, in fact, would say, I believe that they would say this kind of love is a weakness. To love in this sacrificial way would be a weakness. But is it? No, it's not a weakness. Greater love has no one than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. That is not weakness. That's what the Word of God says. This is, this is our standard for truth as Christians. The world doesn't believe that. Um, so are we going to go by, as Christians, are we going to go by what the world says? Because they're offering a lot of things. They're offering a lot of definitions about what love is. Or are we going to go by what God says is the greatest kind of love? That's what we, that's what we want to do. And this is where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? it what about our everyday lives? Um, if this is what the Spirit of God is producing in us, what does it look like? What does it accomplish? What's the point? And I said earlier we we're going to come back to the John 13 passage. So I want to do that now. John 13, verses 34 and 35. Again, it says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So based on those verses, what is the point of this kind of love being produced in us by the Holy Spirit? What is God up to? According to those verses, what is the point? Um, That is a product of it, but verse 35 in John 13 gives us a clear reason. Right. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. You have one for another. And that's what we want. We want people to know that we are disciples of Christ. Not so they'll point to us, say how wonderful we are, but so they'll glorify God. It, it shows the purpose for the Holy Spirit working this out in us is that it shows how he loved us first, that we belong to him, and we see all this in these verses, and apparently others need to see and know this reality through our lives. We can't just say it. It's something apparently, as the Holy Spirit works in our lives, people will see. They will see something different in us that they don't see in other people, um, but they see it in us as Christians, or they should. And God is all about his own glory, and this is a way that he receives glory. Not the only way, but it's one way that he receives glory, by the way his children love one another, the way we treat one another and love one another. What What does it show the world? It shows the world exactly how he loved his children to salvation, it was a sacrificial love. It wasn't based on merit. And this is a gospel opportunity, a way to talk about the gospel with someone who cannot, they can't even imagine this kind of love. Not, again, not, not only from God, but in people, that God could produce this in people. People can't fathom that. They see you do it and wonder, why in the world would you love that unlovable person? Right? Maybe you're in a group of people at work and there's somebody that's 
really hard to work with. Everyone knows it, yet you are loving to that person. Everyone else is wondering, why do you do that? How do you do that? You are, even without words, you're setting an example. You're showing there is something different in you. And that is from the Holy Spirit. That's produced from the Holy Spirit. You didn't come up with it on your own. Without the Holy Spirit, you'd be like all the other people. Okay, so they, they wonder, how can you do this? And they wonder, why don't you hate your enemies, but you love them? How is that possible? It's opposite world to them. It's the twilight zone. They don't get it. We don't even get it without reading the word of God and knowing, oh, this is a fruit of the Spirit. This is what the Spirit is doing in me. It's not me. Well, if this is how you and I are supposed to be loving God first and other people, and this is what the Spirit of God is producing in us, what should we be doing? What, what is this going to look like in my day-to-day life if, if it's not about a one-time giving up of my life for someone else, which... By definition, you can only die in someone's place one time. Right? Um, it's not that. So there's the question. If not physically dying for someone, how can you and I manifest this kind of love toward God and others? What are some ways that this can become a reality in our lives? It can be played out, so to speak. Serving others. In kindness to others? Forgiving. That is not easy, is it? Forgiving others. And that is a very big way that we can show this kind of this kind of love. What else? There's a lot. So yeah. Again, choosing to forgive others, when they, even when they don't ask for it or deserve it, right? Because in our minds, people got to deserve it. If I'm going to give them forgiveness, they got to deserve it. Right. Yeah, or, or yeah, maybe it's not that big of a deal and, and it's really not causing bitterness in you and all that, and maybe it's not an issue of forgiveness. But if we're talking about forgiveness, something that's been some wrong that has been done against you and you need to forgive a person, and you don't because they don't deserve it, you better start asking some questions about yourself. Does anyone, including you, deserve to be forgiven? No. When Christ forgave us, we didn't deserve to be forgiven. We deserve the opposite. We deserve judgment. We deserve wrath. Okay, but that's what this kind of love is, a sacrificial love. It's a, a love of the will. God chose to love. We, if we choose to be slow to get angry, maybe slow to get angry with my, my wife or your husband or your kids, your parents, your boss, your coworkers, politicians, whatever it is that makes you angry, okay, being slow to be angry, choosing to and working toward reconciling broken relationships. How many of us have had broken relationships in our lives? How many still have broken relationships in our lives? Even though I don't feel like doing so. And this goes along with forgiveness. Choosing to set aside my own desires to do for someone else, even when I don't want to do the thing they want to do. 
Okay, I think this happens in marriages a lot. Um, it happens with siblings a lot. Um, choosing to think of others as more important than myself. Another biblical concept we see in Philippians uh, chapter 2, I believe. You know, they always want to go to this restaurant. I, I don't want to go to that restaurant, but I'm, I'm do it anyways. Right? They always want to do this or that. I don't want to do that. Do it anyway, as long as it's not sin. Choosing to go and serve someone else when you're tired from working all day is a way to exhibit this kind of love. Choosing to go to church or Bible study, even when your first thought is to go skiing or do something else. Okay? Um, choosing not to lie to others. In short, choosing to be obedient to the Lord God and his word. Because you can go find all kinds of things, ways that you and I are supposed to live, and when we don't, we're disobedient to him. And that is not, certainly not loving him. And usually, it manifests in not being loving towards other people. Whatever the thing is that we're doing that's sinful, usually bleeds over into our relationships with other people. And notice, I use the word choosing a lot there, and, and that is, is a word describing the will the will of a person. The reason you and I have such a hard time with this is because we are selfish by nature. I don't want to do certain things. We want our way. We want what we desire and not what other people desire. It's really hard to let go of the things I want and the way I want them to be in order to do what somebody else wants to do. Again, this is... A love of the will. It is a sacrificial love. It costs you something. It costs God something. This is agape love. And it is the first and most important of the fruit of the Spirit. What can help us with knowing how to do this? What does the Bible offer us besides the reason to do it? We've talked about the reason to do it, which should be enough in itself. Right? What can we learn from other parts of Scripture about how to practice this? Because that's what we have to do. We have to practice this. It is, it is a, a practiced thing. The Bible calls it putting on. Right? The putting off the old and putting on the new. Yes. Yeah, there's, there's proof in that. Right? When we abide in Christ, when we remain in him and in his word, we are proving to be one of his children. Um, yeah, go ahead. Right. Yeah. Those, uh, when we talk about putting off and putting on, those who are in Christ are, are taught by the Word of God through the Spirit of God to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. That's Ephesians 4.22. Put that off. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. It's the, uh, uh, two verses later, Ephesians 4.24. Okay, so putting off and putting on is an important thing an important part of our sanctification, of our, our holiness as Christians. Um, 
And this is not some mystical ceremony where we conjure up some sort of -of out-of-body experience in order to put on the new self. Okay, That's not what's being talked about here. To, To put on the new self is talking about, what it's talking about is like putting it on like clothing. You're putting on the character of God like clothing. You're putting on the righteousness of God like clothing. Okay, um, That's why the last verse said, the new self is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. But we don't and cannot sit back and think that the Spirit of God is transforming you without your obedience and action in the matter. In terms of those who are Christians... Following the commands of God, we don't just sit back and do nothing. Right? This is the Christian walk. It is how we conduct ourselves. It's our, it's our life. It's our response to this kind of love that God showed us, first in salvation and then ongoing in our lives through his grace continually. We put on the fruit of the Spirit, which is first, love. We put it on like clothing. And again, it, it implies action. Okay? Look with me, if you would, at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We read one verse out of there earlier, but I just want to look at another. It's a familiar passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, dealing with love, and people usually bring it up in terms of marriage and all that, but that is... Not the only thing this applies to. So I want to look at the first seven verses there in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 7. Let's, let's hear what the scripture says about love. And don't just think about this in terms of husbands and wives, okay? That's not, not all that's being talked about here. Okay, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is quite an informative list. Right? If, if true love were, now this is going to be backwards, okay? If true love were impatience, unkindness, envy, boasting, arrogance, rudeness, rejoicing in wrongdoing, insisting on your own way, being irritable, being resentful. Some of your Bibles might say keeping a record of wrongs. How are you doing at being loving? If that was love, ah, we would get an A. Yeah, I said I'm doing it kind of backwards here. If true love were impatience, unkindness, and all these other things, envy, boasting, how are you doing? Pretty good. I'm probably the most loving person you know. If that were the measure of true love, but it's not. Okay? Uh, 
we read those verses and immediately should recognize areas in our lives where we're, where we're failing at this. We are not doing a good job at, at love. We're failing to put on love in our lives as Christians. I have no trouble keeping a record of wrongs that someone's done. That's easy. I mean, I can think back years and remember wrongs people have done to me. That is very easy. Or I can be resentful very easily. I have no trouble being irritable or insisting on my own way. That's very easy. And you and I have problems here, don't we? I mean, I could get in the car and drive a mile and be irritated by all kinds of things. Okay? Driving, I think, is one of God's favorite means of sanctification. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's a good point. It's not that it's not that there is no emotion attached to love, but it's not the motivation. It's 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 not what it is. Love is not the emotion. It may be a byproduct of a sacrificial love, um, but it's not it's not love itself. So emotion is real. We do. I mean, if somebody loves me in this way, in a biblical way. There is an emotion. I mean, we can sit here in church and sing on Sundays and sing about what Christ has done and get very emotional. I can, I can think about what God has done, how God has loved me, and I can have a lot of emotion flowing through me. There's nothing wrong with that. That's, God gave us our emotions, but we don't love because of emotion. It, love it, uh, the emotion itself is not love. It's just a byproduct of the truth, perhaps. Like if we're talking about singing hymns, the truth of the words that we're singing about God um, brings about some emotion, but it's because of that sacrificial love. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think emotions are a part of it. I think we just need to be careful in making sure that we don't think emotion is somehow even evidence of true love. I mean, we, people have all kinds of emotions about things. They might feel a certain way about somebody thinking they love them, maybe they really don't. They don't truly love them in the biblical sense. Um, so we have to be careful about our emotions. But nonetheless, emotions are from God. They can truly represent um, the true love of God for us, the, the byproduct of that love, the um, outflowing of that love. So yeah, we shouldn't disregard our emotions. Um, so... We read that list and we think about how we don't do great at it. I mean, it's not that we are never loving, because then that would defeat or that would go against what the scripture is even telling us. The Holy Spirit is producing this in us. So it is going to show up in our lives from time to time. Perhaps in, in more mature believers, it might show up more. Sometimes mature believers can get lazy. Maybe a more immature believer might even exhibit more of this kind of love than a mature believer. 
Um, but the Spirit of God is working it in us. Um, and it's different than the world. And we know, as Christians, we know when we mess up, don't we? We know when we sin. That's your conscience being applied by the Holy Spirit. Listen to it. And put off that old uh, response to whatever it is. Maybe somebody was unkind or to put off the old response that you would have, how you would have responded and ask for God's help and put on a response in keeping with the fruit of the Spirit, uh, which is love. The fruit of love should be increasing in us day by day as Christians. We will sometimes fail. Um, it's, and it is sin for us not to love Christ as he loved us and not to love others as Christ loved us. It is sinful. But we ask God to forgive us. We keep moving forward. We keep asking the Holy Spirit, help me to be more Christ-like in my love for others. Help me to love others the way you have loved me. And it's a, it's a progression. It's part of our sanctification as believers. Um, but remember, in that process... Who, remember, who is love? God. Right? He forgives. He restores. He sanctifies you. He makes you holy. We can come to him. We can ask him for help. Yes. Sure. Good point. Yeah, excellent point. It's very true um, that this, of course, he is love. It begins with him, and he is a triune God. Um, that love didn't just come about once he created the, the world and mankind. It's always been there between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Good point. Um, one other thing we need to learn about, about this fruit of the Spirit if you and I truly want to exhibit love in our lives, we need to do something else. We need to hate. That doesn't sound right, does it? If we want to love, we need to hate. How is it that you and I as Christians can see hate as love? Sin. Hating sin, right? Hating evil, right? Uh, we need to know, first of all, as Christians, that God hates 
sin. He hates evil and wickedness in every form. Now, Jeremiah 44.4 says, Yet I persistently sent to you all my servants the prophets, saying, Oh, do not do this abomination that I hate. And Zechariah 8.17, Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another, and love no false oath, for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And then Psalm 45, 6 and 7 says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. You can go on and on through the scriptures, finding passages describing God as hating evil, hating wickedness. And we could conclude uh, from these, just these verses if we wanted to, that since we are children of God and God hates evil and wickedness, we should do the same. We could just conclude that from those. Okay? But you and I don't have to just conclude that from those verses, though we could. God has made it clear that this is the proper way of thinking for his children. And Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Okay, so that's for us as Christians. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. God hates the way of evil. Um, he says in that verse there, uh, that's an all-encompassing hatred. The way of evil. That's, that's all of it, all together. Everything we know from Scripture that is sinful, evil, wicked, God hates it. We can, get, we can get this. We know what he's saying. And we can even agree. In 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Loving both is impossible. We can't love the world and love the Father. It's one or the other and there's no middle ground. But the Lord gets even more personal than this. I want you to turn with me to Luke 14. Luke 14, verses 25 through 33. This is, now, this is Jesus speaking, or he'll be about to speak here in a second. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. What? <laughs> How can this be? This is talking about you and I who claim to be disciples of Christ. If, if that person, a disciple of Christ, if this person comes to him and makes this claim about being a disciple of Christ, yet does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be a disciple of Christ. 
In other words, you're a liar. Your, your claim about being my disciple is empty. But we need, we need some clarity here. This is, it's difficult to take. If you turn to Matthew 10 with me, um, I mean, imagine the people even hearing Jesus speak these words, how that sounded. But if we go to Matthew 10, verses 34 through 37, we have Matthew's account of this scene. Um, it gives a little more clarity what is meant by hatred here. And this is an example of Scripture explaining Scripture. Verse 34, chapter 10 of Matthew do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, and this is Jesus talking, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Okay? Up there, verse 37, because verse 37 is informative. Okay, whoever, this doesn't talk about hate. It doesn't use the word hate, but it says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. See, the idea here is not hatred of them, talking about mother and father and all that. It's not hatred of them in terms of a feeling or an emotion or a way we're treating them or something like that. This is about how much our love for them would then cause us to disregard the Lord. Okay, in other words, I say I love God and I'm a disciple of God, but my dad or my mom or other family member doesn't. My family member says, if you follow God, you're no longer my son. You're no longer my daughter. You see where this is going. This is a division. This is causing a division. If I'm not willing to lose my relationship with my father for the sake of Christ, I cannot be a disciple of Christ. You see, it's not about a feeling of hatred towards them or treating them hatefully or anything like that. My love for my earthly father becomes a hatred of God if I turn away from the Lord because I so desperately want to cling on to that my earthly father, to that earthly relationship. The point of these gospel accounts of Jesus' words is that people would count the cost of being a disciple of Christ. There is a cost to being his disciple. There's a cost to loving God in this way, just like there was a cost for him. And loving anything or anyone more than Christ is hatred of Christ. So we must hate our family in that sense. If they are pulling me away from Christ, if they are saying, no, he's not true, it's not true, uh, Christianity's not true, the Bible's not true, um, they're pulling me away, am I going to listen to that? Am I going to abandon the word of God? Am I going to abandon Christ because of that relationship? Then I am proving that I love them more than I love God. I can't imagine losing that relationship. And I'm not saying that's, it's easy. I mean, some of you know the deep family ties, the, the anguish and pain this can cause to follow Christ when family members are not, and ultimatums they may give you or the ways they may treat you, it can be very difficult. But we want to love them, but we want to love them less than we love God, whom we love supremely. 
And the fact that God has loved us in such a way as to save us and give us his spirit to cause us to love him and to love others in the same way he's loved us, this is an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. It's not without hardship. It's not without pain. 1 John 3.1, I think, is a really good picture of how we should be thinking about this as Christians. It says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. See it, John says. He's saying, see it. He's calling us to marvel at this kind of love that God had, that first, that God had for us. And that now the Spirit of God is working through you, producing in you, to love God in that way, to love others in that way. And it's not based on merit. People, I mean, can be enemies of yours. And you are to love them. You are to pray for them. We were enemies of God. When Christ died for us, we were his enemies. And so we are to love others the way he loved us. You're not going to be great at it. You, you know people who are better than you at it. But if you really knew them, you would see they're not great at it either. And we can only see certain things in people, but I think we all know people in our lives. We can say, boy, that person, they really love people, Right? And that's fine. That's okay. We can see that the Spirit of God is working in them. They're more mature than me. They, they are better at this than me. I need more practice. I need more help. I'm going to ask the Lord to help me. Um, so people will be better than us. But our response to the fact that, that this kind of love is a fruit of the Spirit of God is to agree with God and put on that love in increasing measure. That's our, that's our role. That's our job. See what the Scripture says and respond to it in obedience. Okay, Day by day, manifesting the love of God in our lives to other people proves who he is, proves what he's done for you and me as Christians, and, and that he can and will do it for anyone else who will put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the testimony that we live out when we are putting on love um, to those around us. Okay? Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this reminder of the kind of love with which you loved us first, Lord. That you would send your Son to be our substitute on the cross, Lord, to satisfy your wrath, that you would give us his righteousness through repentance and faith in him. Thank you, Father, for loving us in this way, that while we were your enemies, Christ died for us. And we ask, Lord, we thank you for the promise that this kind of love is being produced in our lives through the Holy Spirit that indwells us as believers. We thank you for that, and we ask for help. We recognize we need help. Lord, as we sit here and we think about the ways in which we are not up to par with, with this kind of love, there are some people in our lives that are difficult to love. Help us, Lord, more and more to love them as you loved us. We have no excuse to do otherwise. Help us to be kind and forgiving and gracious to other people. And we'll trust you with it all. 
And thank you so much, Lord, for your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, well, thank you all for being here tonight. So next week we'll move on in our... um,